This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Secretary of Defense Ash Carter under Barack Obama was in the studio for over an hour and we talked about everything from Iran to North Korea to China to Russia to the procurement process to what we do right with the military and what we get wrong and what we areas we really need to improve. This was a tour de force conversation from somebody who is not only brilliant, he's a Rhodes Scholar, a PhD in, in physics, um, but a historian who focuses on military history in the medieval times. And that has colored how he looks at, at the world, how he looks at the role of government. Uh, I could talk about him for hours, but instead, I'm just going to say, with no further ado, my conversation with former Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Ash Carter. He is the former Secretary of Defense under President Barack Obama. He is the five-time winner of the Department of Defense Distinguished Public Service Medal. That is the highest award to a civilian from the Pentagon. He is a Rhodes Scholar with a PhD in theoretical physics from Oxford, the author of almost a dozen books, most recently, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon, Ash Carter, welcome to Bloomberg. Good to be with you, Mary. So let's um, let's start with your rather unusual academic career. You're a double major, physics and medieval history. How do you end up with that as a double major? Well, it turned out to be useful. More on that in a moment. But for at the time, it was just a right brain, left brain thing. I. I I was fascinated by history mm-hmm. and particularly by medieval history because if you think about it, the Middle Ages was a thousand years long. So if you call yourself a medievalist, you've just gotten yourself a whole millennium of territory. Mm-hmm. And I l- liked the languages, Latin, Greek, French, German uh, to speak. And it was the time when the church Uh, developed, when the university developed, when the English common law developed, when the nation state developed. So a lot of things we live with today. And I found later in life, as I started working in the Pentagon in 1981 and all the way till I left in, in 2019, that that was useful training. Physics is totally Medieval different. history, useful training for the yeah, Pentagon. Yeah, of course, the joke is that I had the perfect, my job was the perfect combination of medieval thinking and physics thinking. <laughs> right. Uh, physics um, was a totally other side of the brain thing. Mm-hmm. It's clean, logical. Right. Uh, and I liked that. And then I had to make a choice for further training in the beginning of my career. And that was, that was for physics. And then I, I got into the whole defense business by, by accident. Um, but how did that come about? Well, it was part, it was, remember the people who taught me physics and were the seniors in the field that I was starting out in, which was elementary particle physics, the mm-hmm. big, big accelerators at Fermi Lab and Brookhaven outside of New York here and so forth. Mm-hmm. I worked at those uh, big laboratories. Those guys were all the Manhattan Project generation. And they had in their veins the idea, first of all, that when you 
that that you you should have a relationship with the government. That doesn't mean that you they always did what you wanted to do, but it was natural to try to help out your country. Uh, and second, that. Uh, with respect to technology and disruptive technology, which the nuclear weapon certainly was, that the people who built it had some responsibility to in to essentially control the technology so that we got the good out of it, which was ending the war with Japan, winning the war with Japan, and keeping the peace for 50 years with the Soviet Union without blowing ourselves up. So they, they, they taught me that we had some, you know, some responsibility. So one day, two of those seniors said to me, a guy who was involved in satellite reconnaissance, another guy who built, designed the first thermonuclear weapon, said to me, Ash, Wait, 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 let me, let me interrupt you right here, because you can't just mention that and go by. You referred to the Manhattan Project. Are you talking about people like Edward Teller and the yes, like? Yes, I, I traveled once with, to Europe with Edward Teller. The two particular, the tip particular I was people I was speaking of was Richard Garwin, uh-huh. who with Edward Teller, but it was really Garwin's design, designed the, uh, I said the first thermonuclear bomb, that is one that that combined fission and fusion, and right. it blew up an island in the Pacific Ocean. It was very successful. In much more powerful areas. than the original Much, about bombs, thousand, thousand uh, right. times yeah. more powerful. Um, and the other guy was the a person who was very instrumental in putting the first um, essentially cell phone type cameras, digital cameras onto our spy satellites. Our old spy satellites in the old days would take pictures on film, big rolls of film, and then when the film was all exposed, they would separate it from the satellite, put a little rocket on it. The rocket would slow it down. It would fall down to Earth, deploy a parachute, and we'd fly an airplane next to the parachute with a hook on it. Right. And the hook would grab the parachute, reel in the film. We'd fly it to what, in those days, the CIA did all of that interpretation, right right outside of Washington, Anacostia, Washington. They'd fly it, they'd develop it, and they'd count how many Russian missiles and so forth. So that was the guy who was instrumental in turning that film system into a digital system. Mm -hmm. So they were the two, that's the two specific people, Richard Garwood and Sidney Drill. Those are both pretty big technologies. Yeah, yeah. And those happened to be the two who said to me, well, once you go to Washington for just one year, yeah, it turned out to be thirty-seven, just <laughs> one year, and work on a problem that was a big deal at that time, Barry, which was a Cold War problem of where to, what to do with the MX missile. How I to, recall that that was uh, under Reagan trying to yes. figure out how we could hide and shuttle all these missiles underground to hide them from Russian satellites. So they couldn't target them. Right. So I think the original plan, and and I I don't remember how much of this is from your book and how much of this is male memory, that 4,500 silos, we're going to shuttle 500 missiles around. Pretty impossible plan. Uh, It was certainly very unpopular because it would have paved over a big part of the Great Basin area, the southwestern United States. It was actually the Carter administration's plan. Mm -hmm. Reagan looked at it and said that looked said it looked like a Rube Goldberg thing. Right. Uh, so that was a to him a pretty ugly baby. This idea of of digging all these holes and then hiding missiles in them. So he began. And this is all under. 
the concept of being able to survive a first strike in order to make sure mutual assured destruction was in, in place. Exactly, because if we took the MX missile and we put them out where the Soviets could hit them, then in a crisis, they'd say, well, our only way of surviving is to go first. Right. And that would be an incentive to, for them to go first. And we, seeing them thinking that way, would say, well, we better, get ri- we better launch these before they destroy them. So one or the other of us is going to start a war under those circumstances. We wanted to avoid that, that situation. Situation. So anyway, that was the project's all in the past now. And that, that was I effectively your first book. Uh, yes, yes. After I did this, I wrote it, which is essentially a technical book on, right. on that subject. Um, but uh, two things happened to me there, Barry, which I think is, is important to anybody who's choosing a career or at a crossroads in their career. Um I found that in these Washington conversations, I had something to offer that nobody else in the room had. Namely, I understood how it all worked technically. And the decisions were very consequential. So for a young person to to be able to make a contribution, to feel like they're able to make actually a a contribution, not just watch, but make Mm -hmm. a contribution, and that the issues they're dealing with really matter. That's a that's a wonderful, you know, it's a hugely inspiring combination. Sure. And so that's what got me caught the bug of, of, of defense. And I've been devoted to, you know, defending our country and making a better world for our children ever since. But it could have gone a different way. But for those two people who who inspired me, it's a good lesson to all of us to, to you, and, and now I, teach people at a university that's my way of continuing to contribute Uh, but you give them a little nudge and um uh in the direction of public purpose and public spirit it's a good thing let's talk a little bit about uh the iraq war and you go into quite a bit of detail in the new book inside the five-sided box lessons from a lifetime of leadership in the pentagon what made the iraq war such a unique fight relative to previous U.S. military uh, history? Well, um, from a, a managerial point of view, which mm-hmm. is the point of view that the the book takes, uh, it was a counterinsurgency war rather than a war of one country with another. Asymmetrical so, warfare, is so that we the had right to phrase? Learn, yes. Uh, so the first thing is we had to learn that. Uh, by, by the way, I should back up a little bit, Barry, and say, of course, that the invasion of Iraq in 2003 didn't turn out very well, mm-hmm. history says. I have to say I didn't have the wisdom to oppose that at the time. I believe— Many people did not. I, I, I'm, I count myself among them, and I'm not proud of that, but uh, I, I can't say I had better wisdom than anyone, anyone else. Anyway, we found ourselves in, in Iraq, and of course, when I became— uh, first the number three in the department, then the number two, then the number one. All During all that time, we were still fighting in Iraq. And uh, here's what we got out of it that um, uh, was, in a way, useful to today's uh, very different strategic situation. Uh, we learned to stop working in the old Cold War mode, which was, yeah, that is, was very Superpower slow. versus superpower. Superpower versus superpower. And moreover, the Soviet Union was this slow, lumbering, very predictable thing. Uh-huh. And so you could have many-year programs where you slowly built the perfect thing. When you're at war and people are getting killed or, or 
kids are coming back with no legs, and my wife right. and I are at the hospitals every weekend, talk, you know, meeting with them and talking, talking to them. Uh, there, then you're working day by day. That's a very different pace, sure. and it's much better suited to today's competitive world. Because mm-hmm. now, as we turn back to China, Russia, as we must do, we have, if we did that and tried to compete with them today in the old mode. That wouldn't work because people are moving faster today. Mm-hmm. Technology's moving faster. So I, again, n- nobody likes to be in a war for that long. Nobody likes to be dealing with uh, issues like uh, uh, amputations and prostheses, uh, PTS, all the things we had mm-hmm. to learn. But we also learned something about agility in the course of Iraq. And then, of course, Afghanistan as well. And I was all in when I was in the Defense Department. I know some people... Don't agree with those wars, and we can talk about that later. But when you're there and you're responsible for them, uh, that was my highest priority every day. I went to bed thinking about them. I woke up thinking about them. There's no choice. So let's talk a little bit about some of the adaptations that some took place fast, some took place slow. Um, One of the things you write about are are the IEDs, and, Mm. and two really interesting issues come up in that. The first is the concept of drones versus blimps. Yep. That some yeah. people on the ground wanted drones, which really are good at flying in circles for short periods mm-hmm. of time. But you wanted full, there aren't a lot of roads in Iraq. You wanted full coverage of yeah. where insurgents are bringing IEDs that could hurt troops. Yeah. How did that process go from <clears throat> let's get these expensive drones that'll take two years to get into place to no, no, we could hang blimps it'll take us uh, a really short period of time and have eyes in the sky on on everything it it began one morning when bob gates was secretary he was the number one i was the number three at that time and on the and we were having a video teleconference secure video teleconference Mm -hmm. with Kabul, and up on the screen was stan mccrystal who was our commander there right and stan says to bob that he needs he has only 15% of the drone coverage he needs. And Bob Gates looks at me with that. I was his top supply weapons buyer. Right. And he said, with that, what are you going to do about that, Ash? Look right. And I thought to myself, how on earth am I going to get seven times the number of drones? So In a very short period of time. In a very short time. period of time. So I get on the phone and I talk to Stan's intelligence head mm-hmm. at that time, who was General Mike Flynn. Right. This is pre oh, way before pre-issues. the whole issues right. with uh, this is, his. This getting, is pre politics. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, and and I, he had a good reputation he as did, a military he did, intelligence. He did, guy. and I enjoyed working with him. Yeah. I don't know what happened later. I, I I I lost touch with him. But anyway, when I began, to, I said, "Geez, what do you what do you need all that coverage for? That drone coverage?" And it turned out that it wasn't to get the kind of film that only a drone could get. Only a drone can fly down a long highway. Um, But they wanted persistent coverage over one base or one town. That's what they really needed. And satellites are going yeah, by. Satellites too fast. are zipping by, right. and they're over Australia when you really need them. <laughs> Drones you can do, but you have to. They're much more expensive, and you have to fly them around in circles. Right, so, and you need a pilot, even if they're remote. A pilot in the US. who's back in right. California, as it turns out. But yeah, a well-trained pilot and a crew and somebody to make all the decisions. Very different. We we came up with the idea of just putting a balloon up. 
and you put a helium-filled balloon over the base. It's got a camera on it. And the feed goes right down to the captain Uh who is commanding that little outpost. And the reassurance that those guys had that when they went out on patrol, they knew what the locals were doing. This is full video, infrared, the whole spectrum. exactly. Now, why couldn't those just get— The kind of cameras that are on the— helicopters that fly uh-huh. around looking look, looking at car accidents sure and traffic patterns that kind so of thing. so why couldn't those just get shot out of the sky Be, it, it's they tried and here's first of all the pressure of the helium inside is not very much uh-huh There's so a it's lot not going to pop when it's it... not going to pop and so every once in a while you winch it down and sew up the holes that's it it's but, it. that's it it's not a big but <laughs> the enemy the bad guys would when it went up not knowing that, take pot shots at it. We began to put um, microphones on that could identify. Triangulate? Yes, triangulate. <laughs> and so if you took a shot at one of our balloons, a mortar shell fell on you a few seconds later. <laughs> so the other IED question I have is in the beginning of the war, uh, and you mentioned uh, injured troops coming home, lots of the Humvees were really very lightly armored. Yeah. And maybe this is my memory, but... The recollection of how long it took to get the Humvees up armored yeah. and protect seemed like it took a long time. It did. And then later on, the anti IED, uh, there's all sorts of interesting technologies to detonate these things from a distance. Yep. Why did that seem to take so long? Is the process to um, identify what you want, order it, and get it delivered, is it really that long? Part of it was the, the bureaucracy was still working on that. Cold War lumbering enemy mode where we'll deliver uh, the perfect thing in five years. Even and in the middle need, of a hot war. I, I, you'd be amazed. I would call people up when I was in the so-called acquisitions are, and I would say, do you realize that on your desk is a contract that you're supposed to sign or audit? And that is, I need that tomorrow. And it would be in the stack, this bureaucrat right. stack of papers. And as soon as they became aware that this was a matter of life or death for... for Literally. For, yeah. They'd pull it out of the stack. But you'd be amazed at how much of that I had to do every single day, even when I was Secretary of Defense, wow. to push the system. But but we we did it. Let's take the MRAP, which is the vehicle you're talking about. Right. Um, when MRAPs first started to be fielded, there was another attitude, which was, hey, look, this war is going to be over in a while. Right. Why only buy something that's going to be good for, you know, the Army will be around for a long time. We need to be thinking about what we're going to want in 20 and 30 years. Yeah. And it's, I, and and I— That's not hot war thinking. That's no, That's no, bureaucratic turfdom. Bureaucrat, exactly right. Huh. There, was, there was a lot of that, conscious and unconscious. And you mentioned the two different types of dogs in the book. You mentioned— there are bomb sniffer dogs, and then there are attack dogs. Mm-hmm. It seemed that there weren't enough breeders to get enough dogs quickly, yeah. and you guys went out and said, let's yeah. go global and find these dogs. <laughs> that you guys could get very, very quickly. Yeah, it, it turns out that the, the, the guy who was usually buying fighter aircraft and aircraft carriers and satellites and so forth, namely me, and drones and balloons and so forth, ended up learning how to buy dogs and i learned a lot and you're right in fact there's more than one kind of sniffer dog right there are some sniffer dogs on leash and off leash on leash and off leash and some that work better in confined areas and some 
that are comfortable with open areas. And different breeds have different predilections. And so you learned that. And then you had to source them, as Uh you said. And the United States has kennels, but there weren't enough kennels to supply. So we did globally source dogs. Are we talking thousands of dogs? And they did a great job. Yes. Thousands of dogs with a... Great, great, great. And became, and this was a good side and a bad side of this, but became really good friends of the troops. They love them as people tend Some to love dogs. Some were able to take them back home with them uh, at the end of their deployment. Yeah, Not the enough, sad, but many. The sad, the sad case was where when the dog died, which happened, um, but especially if dogs were wounded or even if they were in the vicinity of an IED, mm-hmm. it was impossible to use them anymore. They, they, they become very right. uh, nervous at that point and the, all their training would go out the window. Right. They had their we'd own ha- PTSD. We'd either have to sadly put them to sleep or, or take them and try to find a home for mm-hmm. them in the United States. Well, they they uh, certainly served uh, quite well. And, and uh, I, I think... There's a long history of canine corps in the military, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, their their noses, I went to DARPA, our high-tech research arm, uh, looking for better noses, electronic noses than a right. dog's nose. And the people who know about electronic noses say, don't, they're, they're not... It, years and years, years away. And years away. away. You got a war to fight now. Just go out and buy yourself a dog. Wow. Amazing. You describe working in D.C. as, quote... Being a Christian in the Coliseum, you never know when they're going to release the lions and have you torn apart for the amusement of onlookers. How accurate is that description, and and how frustrating is it to work in a town like D.C.? Well, I got used to it after a while. I was there for 37 years on and off and associated with the department uninterruptedly since So they never really released the lions at you, did they? No. Uh, I went through four Senate confirmations, which was mm-hmm. really what I was talking about in that particular uh, passage. And that's a time of great vulnerability in Washington because anybody who doesn't like you can take a shot at you right. then or try to persuade some senator to put a hold on you came up unanimously uh for secretary of defense Uh, that's not many people that's actually i think there were two or three votes not personal about me Uh but but uh nobody voted against you either they abstained or they voted for you not a lot of people in dc get that sort of love from the u.s senate uh no but but there i mean i tried to earn it the old-fashioned way Mm -hmm. i uh, kept my nose clean and mm-hmm. all those years i never had it was investigated or right or, or anything i never now ever... that's the normal course these days that seems to be a little unusual but typically people working in the defense department tend to put their head down do their job and keep their nose clean. yes and conduct is really important the 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 in the the profession of arms Honor and trust matter a lot. And if you can't trust people in small things, how can you trust them in big things like war? So for us, it was a big deal. And when you're at the top, you have to show example. And so it was, I always watched over my conduct and comportment and tried to make an example. Let me give you, let me give you a particular instance of that that I describe in the book, uh, Barry. Um, when I, in many, many, many times, was in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's hot, it's 120 degrees, mm-hmm. 
if I was Secretary of Defense, you'd, you'd see the see foreign leaders, you'd talk especially to our commanders and what we're doing and, and give them the direction that they needed. And then I'd meet with hundreds and hundreds of troops and you'd shake their hands and so forth. And I'd wear my suit. Uh, out in the desert. Suit and tie, 120 degrees. Suit and tie, 120 degrees, sweating like a wheel of cheese out there. (laughs) And uh, my staff would say, hey, uh, sir, you you know, you can take your jacket off. And the troops would say, hey, it's just us, Mr. Secretary, you can relax. And I always kept my suit on. And here's why. Because every time I shook one of those soldiers' hands, we had a photographer take a picture. Right. That picture would be sent home to mom. Right. Mom would frame it and put it by her bedside right, or on the mantle. And I wanted to look the part. I wanted to look like You still the look secretary. the part. Well, I do. I have my suit on and my flag and I wear – and I would wear the same thing out there because I thought it was important that their mother understand that I was the – of course, she doesn't know me. She doesn't know the secretary. Right. She doesn't care. She cares about her son. Right. But, but her I son is standing look, next to I someone I need to in... look like the guy who right. deserves to be sending her son to war. That was mm-hmm. important to me. And that's a small example of how you behavior, comportment, conduct matter a lot. I think they matter in, not only in the largest organization in the world, the Pentagon, but in any kind of organization. And I, I obviously um, uh, am dismayed uh, at times these days about uh, conduct I see. Um, and I held people to a higher standard and I fired people for things that, you see today, we fired people for lying, for having sex with subordinates. All of these things were, were un- unfortunately happened, mm-hmm. um, but there was no doubt. I was harsh on people, but they were even harsher on subordinates. Our rules are very strict about that, and um, our ethos is uh, one of where conduct uh, is a sign of character, and character is an uh, increasing an aspect of leadership and you can't give somebody leadership over troops if they don't have conduct and they don't have character. So let me ask you, I'm going to throw two curveballs at you. The first is uh, we ask our troops to go in harm's way and we make extraordinary demands of them and they come back home, not directly under the Pentagon, but under the VA. Mm. They haven't been getting really terrific uh, treatment. We have a number of veterans in my office and I've heard some pretty horrifying tales. What's going on in the VA and what can we do to give our veterans the sort of care they deserve? Well, the VA is a very, very complicated bureaucracy. It's separate from the Defense Department. Um, And in most countries, they would be managed together, but they're managed separately. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. And it would be part of the defense budget, but it's not part of the defense budget in this country. But it's a separate cabinet department. Should it be? Should it be part of the the Pentagon and the defense budget? Uh, it it may be that if we could start over again, that would have been a better way to manage things. But now I think mushing to or organizations again. Remember, we tried that in the Department of Homeland Security, and it didn't. And work. It, well, it took ten years or so right. began before it began to show any results. Um, but at any rate, uh, so the VA has a difficult job of taking care of what is largely a geriatric medical population, mm-hmm. whereas our medical system, which is huge in the Defense Department, it's the largest in the country, and so you run the largest medical 
center in the medical care system in the country if you're the Secretary of Defense. Um, but it's it's uh, has a lot of uh, pediatric work, right? Because our young sure. people have children, so they're completely different populations. That makes sense. Um, what we were doing a bad job of, I discovered when I uh, started to run the place, was the transition from a soldier to a veteran. Which now, is a very that. challenging transition. It is. Because remember, some of these people have never done anything else but be in the military. Right. Some of them are kids that came out of high school, went in for a few years. They've never had a civilian job. I discovered that our separation program, what we did with soldiers and sailors, airmen and Marines before they left service, was essentially to teach them how to get on welfare. Really? Yes. And of course, I was revolted by that. Right, it's not I good for imagine. them and it's yeah. not good for the public that's paying for these things. So we designed a new transition program that f that had three tracks. One was a get a job track. If you never had to get a job, let's tell you how to make a resume. Let's tell you how to get on some of these social media where you can describe what you're good at. Let's tell you how you can describe your in civilian terms, the skills you got as a military person. Second track was entrepreneurship, like how do you run a, a McDonald's franchise? Mm -hmm. And the third was continuing education, if you want to get on the GI Bill some further education. So we turned it from a, a, a your life in the future is one of dependency upon the VA and getting benefits to what you to you've got a life ahead let us help you prepare and of course they're still qualified to get the benefits they still just sure. still deserve them but to just to teach them right away to get that it's all about social safety net when they get out that's no way to treat I, somebody i will tell you from my personal experience the veterans who work in my office are our secret weapons logistics trading cfo it, it's amazing and every time we look to hire somebody, we try and say, is this a person that a veteran can fill and that Barry, role? Barry, you know, that's new. And I, I always look Really? That. Well, it is. It's only in the last 10 years I, because I started working on veterans employment when I was the undersecretary, the number three job, uh, back in 2009. And employers would say, okay, Ash, we promised to hire 5,000 veterans, a big company. Right. And they'd put it on their TV ads and everything. And they acted as though they were doing us a favor. By now, most employers have the attitude you just described. Well-trained, smart, logical, exactly. Uh, and, Honorable. Yeah. The, the, absolutely. And go back even further to the Vietnam era. Well, and different I don't know social what situation. I I, I, and I, I don't know what I would have done as secretary. I couldn't have stood to see our people treated that way. Yeah. I mean, now you go to the airport and they're boarded first on the plane right. and all, right. you know, and that kind of thing. But Some you, of that is making up for the mistakes of the Vietnam era. Yeah. One of the the most moving things you can do as a current secretary of defense is to talk to Vietnam era veterans. And a line that not only I use, but others, including the president used, uh, uh, was uh, just in case nobody said this to you when you came home the first time, welcome home. <laughs> and you, there are tears in the eyes I could of, some imagine. of some of these guys because of the way they were treated. That would have broken my heart uh, at the time. Fortunately, I didn't live, need to live in that year. I live in an era where most people have the, the attitude that you do, which is these guys deserve a good job. I, I think we learn a little bit from our, our, our societal mistakes in the past that, that war was problematic, but then, you know, people who were 
Um, and that was not a voluntary army. That was a uh, people were drafted. Yep. They should not have been treated the way they, they were when they came back, but that was a very different time. Let me throw the other curveball at you, which is what you just brought up. Some of the issues we're hearing about people dealing with within the military, within the um, Department of State, just generally within the government, moving away from the concept of honor and responsibility and truthfulness. What does this say about us as a country? How have we gotten so far off track? Well, I, I think that in part it is a reflection of the attitude that some Americans have had that the government is a thing apart from them. Mm -hmm. And I, I've obviously been in and out of government my whole life. I don't have that feeling, but I can well imagine if I were someone who'd been outside of the government, that 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 idea that it's a thing apart, a gaining ground in my mind. But to me, the government is just us. It, it is the way we do things that we ha that have to be done that can't be done by individuals or by companies. Who's going to build the roads? Who's going to educate people? Who's going to fight for us and win against enemies unless we do it all together? Now, I learned that by association with the Defense Department, which, which most Americans really understand. Okay, that's a part of the government I really, sure. I really get. But the other parts, the regulatory parts and all that, they, there came to be an attitude that we took all the good for granted and we picked at what was bad. And there's plenty of things that are bad, and I think the government ought to be uh, as high quality as it can be. Uh, but there was a little bit of that in our society. And then some of the people who are in government today seem to be looking at it as something to uh, pillage at last uh, rather than a, a sacred trust. That's hard for me to uh, relate to, let alone condone. Um, but I think it, it's enabled in part by people taking for granted what the government does for them and also by government not living up to public expectations. So both sides of the equation need to change their attitude because we do need a competent government. It's a competitive world. It's a dangerous world. And um, we need things uh, that only government can do. Quite, quite interesting. So let's talk about some of the interesting things you go over in the book. Um, I'm fascinated by the future of warfare. Is it just going to be drones and robots? What sort of battles are we going to be fighting? And how is the world going to look different from a military perspective than it does today? So let's take a few of the pieces. Okay. Um, I ran the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program. Okay. I started the new B-21 stealth bomber. And I think those are, uh, once you get them under managerial control, important things. But Barry, they're the last manned fighter and manned bomber we'll ever build. Last manned aircraft. That's what I believe. Wow. I think that's the last time. What about ships? Are we we'll going to still it. have manned well, let's ships? Let's take the aircraft carrier. Now, air aircraft carriers are getting harder and harder to defend mm -hmm. against countries like China and Russia. And people ask me, is the aircraft carrier going to go away? And I say, no, because an aircraft carrier is good for a different kind of circumstance. Mm -hmm. An aircraft carrier is still good with the with respect to Afghanistan, mm -hmm. the 
counter-ISIS campaign, environments in which nobody's going to sink the ship. They right. provide America a floating air base. And that's an important thing. But I don't think we'll be trying to use them against China and Russia decades from now. Soldiers, you just said, are robots going to be mm-hmm. soldiers? I think what will happen first is that in, in an infantry squad, there'll be one or two robots that carry Oh, all the batteries <laughs> right. that weigh down soldiers today. They have so much electronics and they have spare batteries for everything uh, that carry the electronics. And also that if they're, let's say, clearing a house is the first thing through the door of the house. Right. And you see a little of that already because what what disarms an IED now compared Those to Those little years treaded, ago? Yeah. small yeah. Roomba I, tanks. I worked, I, I worked on them because we had people walking out in suits with a pair of Wire cutters, right? Very dangerous thing to be doing, and so why not have a little robot do? So you see, now I think that there'll be inch by inch more and more of that taking away some of the more mechanical mm-hmm. and more dangerous jobs. But there'll still be a squad commander, I think, making the decisions about fire and maneuver and when to do things and when not to do uh, things. One thing that's not going to go away. If we're talking about things that are going to go away, mm-hmm. things not going to go away, are nuclear weapons. Right. And let's think about that a little bit because that is uh, something that because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the fact that many people, not myself among them, but many people recognized too late that China and Russia were not turning out the way everybody had hoped in the 1990s. We hoped they were going to turn out okay. Mm-hmm. They didn't turn out okay. And uh, for both those reasons, we uh, stopped improving or really just keeping up our own nuclear arsenal. And in the meantime, they kept building, kept building, kept building. These things aren't going anywhere. Now, I don't think we need new types. I don't. And nuclear weapons are just brutally simple. Right. And, a bomb on a rocket. Uh, right. Um, but I think we need them to defend ourselves and basically to the only way you can defend yourself against nuclear weapons is through deterrence. And um, uh, we haven't built any for 25 years. I think I am a strong supporter of recapitalizing our nuclear weapons arsenal. And anybody who thinks that's going to start an arms race, I would say, well, you don't have 25 years of history on your side because we haven't done anything for the last 25 years. And they've been racing anyway. So we can't be the cause of them. So let's stick with nukes and talk about Korea. Mm Mm-hmm. You were involved as a very junior person back yeah. in 93, 94, yeah, yeah. with the first round of Korea trying to get a nuclear yeah. weapon. Why, this is hindsight bias, obviously, but why don't we just stop them back then, 25 years ago, before they had the chance to retaliate? Well, it's interesting. I, want, I spent about half the year 1994 as an assistant secretary of defense. Meaning where is that in the hierarchy? uh, That's like the third layer down. Okay. Uh, Working on a strike plan against the North Korean reactor, which is all they had. Really? The reactor at a place called Yongbyon. And it had the fuel rods that had plutonium in them. And the they had finished their fueling cycle. And the North Koreans could, if they wanted to, take those fuel rods out extract the plutonium, and they had enough in there to make one bomb. Right. We thought that 
was a cause of war. Right. And so I built that plan to destroy that reactor, which I was at the time, Barry, and this is just uh, uh, the the pride of the artist, I guess, proud of because it would have destroyed an operating nuclear reactor without creating a radioactive plume. Right. Um, but I put Maybe. Hopefully. No, uh, I was pretty certain. I was yeah. pretty certain. Now, of course, I didn't want to do that because the certain result of that would be the North Korean army streaming over the DMZ mm-hmm. and a war beginning, which I was confident we would win. But, but millions would die. At Seoul would change hands twice. Right. And it, it's an ugly baby right. uh, <laughs> as a war to contemplate. But I thought that was going to happen. And Clinton was. Oh, th- really? Was, yes. And he was threatening that to who's the grandfather of the current guy, Kim right. Jong-un, that you see meeting with President Trump. His grandfather, Kim Il-sung, was running the place then. Right. And Kim Il-sung rather unexpectedly said, okay, I'll give up this reactor at Yangbyon if you build me some real Western reactors. Power plants. That can, are power plants and that don't have all the proliferation problems right. that these reactors And did we do that? And we signed that agreement and it stayed in force for five, six years. The North Koreans under his son slowly began cheating. Right. And the whole thing kind of began to fall apart later in the night. Well, we bought ourselves sort of five, six years. Then we had talks again in the late 90s. I was part of them. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, let's see, uh, Condi Rice and, and Colin Powell had some more in 2006. So I've seen various cycles of this. And what about the current cycle? Well, uh, that's not, unfortunately, going anywhere. I don't object to talking to the North Koreans. As I said, we've done it in the, in the past. Um, no president that I worked for, going back to Reagan, would meet with the North Korean leader unless and until there was an agreement. To Explain sign. why. Because they knew that to the North Koreans, that was a huge gift. Mm-hmm. A meeting with the American president. Because in North Korean propaganda, it, it, they, they can tell their people everything's okay and our system, which is a disaster for right. the North Korean people, is actually successful because I got to meet with the American president. Look, it, look at us. We're the equivalent yeah. of a superpower. So when you're dealing with a potential enemy, you don't – in Ash Carter's book, you don't give away anything for free. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't give away a meeting with the president of the United States for free without some exchange. Now, of- yeah, now we gave, now we've given it away. Mm-hmm. We also stopped or curtailed our exercises in South Korea, right. which is a very dangerous move. Remember, the exercises are how we keep us and our South Korean partners sharp mm-hmm. to make it the North Koreans absolutely clear that if they start a war, they will be destroyed and that'll be the end of the regime. And that's what those exercises mm-hmm. demonstrate to, to not keep up that proficiency and not keep demonstrating it risks a war on the Korean peninsula, which as I said, would be a war we would win, but would not look like anything our people have seen since the last Korean War. I mean, the intensity of the violence is unbelievable in that war. Although some people have argued that the North Korean troops, once they're over the border, might not be as aggressive a uh, enemy as some people have suggested, similar to the 
Iraqi uh, National Guard. Well, it's interesting. Um, you don't have much evidence on your side if you have that view. Pure speculation. Well, here's some evidence that goes, the, but it all goes the other way. North Korean agents, military agents, captured. Uh-huh. in South Korea, who have been preparing sabotage and other things that they intend to do in the course of the war like that, um, very few of they're all so brainwashed right. that they, they do not turn compliant. They don't come down into this well-lit, wealthy society and change their views, mm-hmm. even though all of their propaganda and all of their media and so forth have told them that it's a poor and backward place. So if you think about it, Barry, they're in their third or fourth generation of Stalinism. Wow. No other society had that many generations. What that means is that your parents don't tell you stories of how things used to be different. Right. Your grandparents don't tell you stories. There's nowhere if you're a that child. That memory is up, gone. That, that memory is gone that there's a different kind of world. So I, 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 I think the evidence suggests these people are brainwashed deeply enough that they'll fight really hard before they get tempted by all the goodies down in South Korea. Let's talk about another nuclear program, Iran. Yep. We've had a couple of interesting military actions by other countries, namely Israel blew up a reactor, I don't know how many decades ago that was, and then the whole centrifuge hack uh, set them back quite a bit. How close is Iran to uh, building a nuclear weapon, and what should we be doing about that? We had a treaty. This president uh, decided to overturn it. Where are we with uh, Iran and their program? Well, obviously, the treaty was controversial, and, ha- and the United States has has uh, re- rejected it. it. In the meantime, however, it bought us some time mm-hmm. because while they were abiding by it and while it was in force, the Iranians were obliged to destroy a bunch of centrifuges, send a bunch of plutonium to Russia, I mean uh, uranium, uh, enriched uranium to Russia, and destroy a reactor. And they did all that Mm -hmm. before we backed out of the treaty. So we got some goodies, so to speak. Um, In exchange for us releasing frozen funds that were uh, Iran's That's right. What is that, from the late 80s? Yeah, which turned right? out not to be as much as the Iranians wanted. So <laughs> right. maybe in time they would have left. the. Anyway, what's done is done. Uh, at the time that that agreement was negotiated, I was Secretary of Defense. Uh-huh. And as I, uh, I tell a story in uh, the book, which is indicative of how we looked at things in the Pentagon, uh, the morning after uh, that agreement, was concluded by Secretary of State Kerry, I sat down, as I always did, with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a little round table in the Secretary of Defense. I've been there since since George Marshall's day. And uh, I would sit there with Marty or the, later with Joe Dunford uh, every morning, and we were both in town, and also with the vice chairman and the deputy secretary of defense. And we'd say, okay, what do we, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you need today? What? And uh, Marty said to me, Ms. Secretary, uh, the apropos of this Iranian agreement, what are your instructions to the department? And I said, change nothing. Really? I said, it changes nothing. We have a strike plan that will destroy the Iranian nuclear program by force if we Mm -hmm. have to. Uh, 
Uh, we're going to keep 65,000 troops in the Gulf as a deterrent against Iran also carrying out the war against ISIS. Um, we'll continue, we have to continue to counter Iranian malign influence everywhere else, which is lots of places, uh, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and so forth. So I said, don't change anything. What this does is take off our plate a headache that we would otherwise have, right. which is somewhere down the road, we would have to face an Iran that had nuclear weapons. Uh, and that is why I thought I didn't object to the agreement. I supported the agreement because as Secretary of Defense, it took a headache off my plate. But I had lots of Iran headaches on my plate. And I said to Marty, let's keep working on all the other headaches that Iran is. This is not, could never be a grand bargain. So let's talk a little bit about Iran and Iraq. I thought the best argument against invading Iraq in 03 was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We may not be fans of Saddam Hussein or Iraq, but they were the regional counterbalance to Iran. Am I oversimplifying that, or is that a no, fair? No, I'm not. That was our that was our actually conscious view during the Iran Iraq War, which is a pox upon both houses. Right. Let them fight each other right. into, into the ground, and that seemed like a good outcome. And looking back now, you're at what the Middle East has become a a country that kept order within its borders that was not capable of major aggression against mm -hmm. its its neighbor, which Iraq was, you'd otherwise leave alone as long as it wasn't doing anything to us, America. What we thought might become a threat to us was the whole weapons of mass destruction thing. Yeah, but we knew that was nonsense from day one. The whole Cheney separate department of... Anytime someone says, yeah, yeah, the NSA and the CIA... Those guys don't know what they're doing. We're going to set up a little division in the basement of the White House. You know that's just a nonsensical approach. You can't say that, but I can say that. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I, not only uh, wouldn't I say that, but be, I, because I didn't see that at the time. Right. I, I'm, I'm just being honest with okay. you. I'd like to say I was prescient, um, but I actually bought what Colin Powell said at the, I thought there I, I in my experience in government yeah. with that much smoke there had to be fire uh, somewhere and so fair, I was surprised defense. I was disappointed and of course it didn't turn out very well because we did uh, uh, take away the government of Iraq and what was left was no government at all and we've been dealing with the consequences of that so, ever since so let's do a compare and contrast because the fascinating thing about Iraq is the George H.W. Bush invasion in, is that 93? 91. 91. So he famously said, we're going to chase Iraq out of Kuwait, mm -hmm. but we're not going to we're not going to keep going to Baghdad, as some people had suggested. Hey, keep them going and let's just topple. On the theory, I assume that Iran is a problem. Let's let Iraq be there as a counterweight. Why... First of all, am I right in saying the senior Bush's approach? That was the right decision. Was the right at, approach. At the time. So what was the thinking in 03, let's keep going and take Baghdad out, as opposed to, because we clearly won the war 
in the first, I don't know, six weeks, it was over like that. Because its intention in 03 was specifically to topple Saddam. Okay. Remember, the intention of the war in 91 was to recapture Kuwait. Okay. And then when, when that was done, President Bush said, enough. We're out. Now, there were some, and Dick Cheney was his Secretary of Defense, and mm-hmm. I, I knew I was on the uh, uh, advisory board to Dick Cheney at that time, and I knew him at that time, and he wanted to go all the way to Baghdad and said, let's finish this off once and for all. The president overruled him, and that was controversial at that time. Now, fast forward a little bit more than a decade. Dick Cheney is now vice president. uh, With some unfinished business. With some unfinished business. (laughs) And so in retrospect, it seems that that was an ingredient of the decision to to invade and all the stuff about weapons of mass destruction and so forth, which I think was the ordinary citizen's reason for for supporting the 03 invasion. We turned out not to be a reason at all. So let's roll back to 9-11 and Mm. the 2001 attack, which came from Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia, not Iraq. You have a really interesting role, not only in the creation of Homeland Security, but post 9-11. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? I landed in Washington. I must have taken off on a aircraft from Boston at 8 o'clock, just like some of the, bo- the aircraft. The planes that hit the, yes. the towers. I must have been in that same line wow. waiting, waiting to take off. I landed in National Airport, and I looked out the windows. We taxied, and there was a huge cloud of smoke over the Pentagon. Okay, a place I'd worked you know, for years. Been in and out of for yeah. years and years. This huge plume. And you know what else was in? It was striking about that, Barry. Guess what else was in there besides smoke? Paper. It was a huge. You hit an office building. That's sure. What you get is a big plume of, of paper. And I, uh, so I thought, well, that's odd. But I didn't know what the reason. Then I walk up the ramp, look at the TV screen in the terminal, and I see two towers. And then I know exactly. And not only did I know what was going on, but I Instantly. knew who did it. Oh, right. right away. And I knew it was Bin Laden. Be- but, well, he tried to hit the towers previously. Yeah, I mean, so I'd, I'd known that. But remember, for most Americans, this was like the Martians had landed. Yeah. You know, Osama who? And where, where right. did he come from? Why on earth is he doing this? To, I knew right away. Um, and so I and I began to try to help as best I, I could. One of the issues was Tom Ridge became the... Uh, I Homeland recall. Security Secretary, and I tried to help there get our government better organized. So, what was your role with the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security? You were I, you were I, pretty I, intimately yeah, involved. I, I I offered an alternative to that. I mm-hmm. was not in favor of setting up a formal department. I I thought that the Office of Homeland Security. Uh, could be improved. But when you create a Department of Homeland Security, in people's mind, that brought together all our... Makes sense. Well, it doesn't, because you still have the problem that DHS doesn't include the Defense Department. Right. It doesn't include the intelligence community. It doesn't include law enforcement. So the issue still remains, how do you bring everybody together so instead to fight of, terrorists? So it, it, it creates what looks like a little bit of bureaucratic tidiness, but it doesn't get to the core issue. So instead of having a coordinated response from all these different resources, it's just one more Yeah, one entity. more bureaucracy uh, uh, that tries to paste together some organizations that haven't worked together in the past, and they spend all this time 
uh, on themselves and mm-hmm. not on the uh, not on the enemy. So I thought I wouldn't have done it, but we did do it. And then I tried to help it make it uh, work. And for the Defense Department to begin to play a stronger role in counterterrorism, mm-hmm. y- you got to decide. We thought we needed to decide: is terrorism a crime, a disaster? Or an attack. An act of now, war. If it's a crime, you send the FBI. Right. The disaster, you send FEMA. And if it's an attack, you send the Department of Defense. But in the real world, they're all three. Right. And the president, if you think about the president, I'm, if I'm Secretary of Defense, as I was, and there's John Kerry as Secretary of State, and there's these other cabinet members, there are only two people who sit atop us the president and the vice president. There are only two people outrank us. Right. Kerry can't make me do anything, and I can't make <laughs> Kerry do anything. Only the president can make us work together. Well, the president's a busy guy, and he can't watch after everything. So interagency work is inherently difficult for a president because he's got to knock together the heads of cabinet members who have their own proud traditions and laws right. and committees of Congress and all this stuff. And he's a bit, and he's a busy guy. So I thought there was a better way of doing counterterrorism interagency out of the white house, but the president decided to create a department and off he went to, to do it. But I, I did, I opposed that at the time. I also opposed the creation of a director of national intelligence for the same reason. Really? It just created another guy. Right, in the on mix. top of six yeah, separate departments. And, and if the problem is you got a bunch of people who you can't get rid of any of them, you can't put any of them on top of each other, really, because law enforcement really is different from the military. Right. Um, you got to get them to work together. So the managerial question, I always looked at it as a manager. The managerial mm-hmm. question is cooperation, not consolidation. And so you, in your managerial mind, you say, how do I get different things that I cannot mush together and it's not the right approach to mush them together to work together? That's a different managerial so approach. let me throw the question back at you. How do you get the head of the FBI, the head of the NSA, the head of the CIA, the head of the Department of Defense intelligence groups. How do you get these disparate groups, all from very different institutions, to cooperate for a common purpose? There's a model, which is the National Security Council. Mm-hmm. It's been in effect since Eisenhower's days. It has, has worked better and worse in, time, in different times, but it's now got kind of, well, I can't speak to right now, um, uh, but uh, it did for uh, a number of years and really very, very efficiently in the first Bush administration work to get all of the people involved in foreign affairs, whether it's economic foreign affairs or military foreign affairs or diplomatic foreign affairs, working together every day. And, you know, there are meetings at junior levels, their cabinet member meetings, and they try to work everything out. And then only when they have met and tried does the president, is his precious time used. Because remember, he's the only one who can tell everybody what to do. Mm-hmm. But there, it needs to, the National Security Council is basically intended to put decisions in management form that are ready for the president to make a decision that the people at the table can't make because that would involve bossing one another around, which they they can't do. That's a that's a functional system. And when Tom Ridge came in as Homeland Security Director, he was setting up something that was a replica of that. Mm-hmm. I think if it, they'd stuck with it longer, it would it would have worked, worked out. Yeah. Can you stick around a bit? I have yeah, a few more questions you for you. 
We have been speaking with Ash Carter, former Secretary of Defense and author of a new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things defense-related. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Ash, thank you so much for doing this. I don't spend a lot of time with uh, former defense secretaries, and I have a million questions. I am fascinated uh, by the Department of Defense, and if I was born either 10 years earlier or 10 years later, uh, I absolutely would have joined the military. I was in that- Good for you. I was in that zone at the tail end when I graduated high school, it was there was still a hangover draft. from Vietnam. No, no, the draft was long over. I see. Um, but there was still a, a hangover from Vietnam, and sure. it it my father would have uh, killed me if had I done that. Um, I always fancied myself a uh, fighter pilot, which, as you describe, you would have been great. Is uh, <laughs> it's a um, it, this is now. Uh, Manned aircraft is now going to be an antique. It's not like yeah, e- some, even someday. even today. You know, you're firing it's missiles. Mix. It's yeah. not a dogfight yeah. no, like we it. Mi- we have a mix today, and that mix will get get even more and more unmanned over time. I, I think I think that's right. There are a couple of questions I wanted to get to, both about the book and some of the more interesting things, some of the more shocking things within the book. I love the discussion about the joint strike fighter where you're negotiating was is this um northrop Lock, lockheed lockheed martin. lockheed martin not northrop grumman which is uh, what i grew up with sure. um next town over yeah, as yeah. a kid um grumman was in bethpage yeah. and uh-huh. we were building f-14s yeah. there so in the middle of negotiations uh it's already you come in as secretary of defense it's already way over budget way delayed and in negotiations uh the representative uh, from Lockheed asked, well, how many uh, of these, you know, you're talking about budgets and what have you, how many of these planes can you afford? And your answer is, how about none? And you get up and walk out of the room. Tell us about that negotiation. And first of all, why was the joint strike fighter so far behind? How important was this as a piece of military hardware? And how was this resolved under your leadership? Well, that was a tough moment uh, in that meeting room. That was a Saturday, and people knew if I called meetings on Saturday, it was because I was pissed. Right. Uh, and I did have the CEO of this company, and I want to say I have he has a successor and very good relations with Lockheed Martin, and they do a lot of good work for us, but business is business. And what I was telling him was that if this management of this program doesn't improve, it's going to go down the toilet. It's going down the reputational toilet. It's a joke in the media. 
what's the most bloated thing government everybody can say joint strike fighter right. you are well the osprey v22 well, is okay. arguably and there are toilet seats and people associated <laughs> right. with it. well and you can't ask for 700 billion dollars from the taxpayer for defense if you're running things like that so i was the weapons buyer at that time and i said you know i can't defend this kind of thing right. and you're going to drag down the whole program with this kind of management that's the point i was making to him uh-huh uh, what did we do with the Joint Strike Fighter to get it back on track? Uh, there were a number of things, but one thing I describe in, in the book, because it is kind of an executive guide to how to run the place, and contracting is critical. And what I did was shift the aircraft, early aircraft building contract, one of the steps I took, to an incentive contract. It, it rather Rather than a contract where whatever he spent we gave him. That was the old that was method. The old, and... That was the old method. And you can imagine where that, I mean, human nature being sure. what it is, you can see where that leads. And that's okay if you're doing an experimental, more developmental right. type thing. You don't really know where it's going to go and it's unfair to make the guy give you a price. Right. But once he's building aircraft and he's been doing it for a couple of years, a couple of decades. he knows what he's up against. <laughs> yeah. And, well, in this particular model uh, for a couple of years. And I, I, and we, I said, let's write a contract like this. We'll agree on a target price seems like and you think and I think is about what it'll cost to build that plane and we'll put a little profit in uh, not a little profit but a reasonable profit in there for you every dollar you overrun of that I'm going to make you pay 50 cents and the taxpayer will pay 50 cents except if it runs up to 20 cents on the dollar after that you have to pay for it all on the other hand if you if you deliver it cheaper than the target, you get to keep 50 cents, I get 50 cents back. That sounds like a great set of incentives. Yes, that puts the right economic incentives on the contractor. And with that and some other managerial moves we made, the costs of the Joint Strike Fighter stopped rising and eventually turned over. And and now Mm -hmm. we have a Joint Strike Fighter, which uh, I have to tell you, Barry, I said earlier in this uh, conversation that I think it's the last manned fighter we'll ever build. Right. But we do need it now because we need fighter aircraft. And it's the aircraft of the future for our Air Force, our Navy, and our Marine Corps. So without it, we would be in trouble, on top of which well, there are a lot of foreign customers for it, and we sell it, and it's actually good for our economy and for our defense industry. And we, we look at the old F-18s and mm-hmm. F-15s. These are decades-old planes, right? Yes, and they got improved you know, gradually over time, and we sold many of them uh, abroad, and they, they were very useful in uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan, and so forth, and also in deterring more formidable mm-hmm. enemies than, than the enemies we found uh, there, so we needed the Joint Strike Fighter. But this is an example of how, uh, whether it's aircraft carriers, fighter aircraft, dogs for IEDs, mm-hmm. we talk about it. Uh, services. Do you know that half of the contract spend of the Department of Defense is not for aircraft and satellites, not for things. It's for services, mm-hmm. mowing the lawn at a base, doing high tech R and D, all these things, and you have to. You have to learn how to be a good buyer there also. So uh, as the person who ran the acquisition corps, I needed to train them to be excellent in acquisition. And then I had to back them up because when companies tried to push them around 
or not companies. It was, it was always the the lobbyists of the mm-hmm. companies tried to push them around or members of Congress and their staffs tried to push them around. You need to stick up for them if they're doing the right thing. And when you do that, that makes everybody in the acquisition corp perform to their highest potential. And it was real important to me to set that example that the boss backs you up when you do the right thing. And anywhere in the Pentagon, and I would say anywhere in leadership in any department, you have to set expectations. But then when people meet those expectations and they run into trouble, you need to back them up. That means if you've asked them to do risky stuff and something fails and it doesn't work out, you say, fine, you took the risk and I told you to take the risk. It's too often we let people take risk in public life and then if it doesn't work out, well, we- we Throw them under the bus. Cut them loose. Yeah, well, that's fine. It works once. (laughs) Then (laughs) Then nobody else wants to- After that, you don't get anything out of them. So you mentioned high tech. Um, My view of, and I think a lot of people's view of the rise of technology in the American economy, much of that traces back to DARPA mm-hmm. and NASA. Yep. And whether we're talking semiconductors or software or geosynchronous satellites and GPS, all these things trace back to what we did in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Are we still engaging in that sort of deep research? I know DARPA still exists. Yep. They still run all sorts of interesting contests. Self-driving cars is another example. Are we as cutting edge in the technology world in defense as we once were? And if not, what should we be doing there? Well, there are two sides to it. We're still a big dog, mm-hmm. Barry. We spend more on R&D than Apple, Microsoft, and Google combined. Mm-hmm. So we still do a lot, including a lot of frontier stuff. But let's be realistic. When I started my career, everything of consequence in the world of technology, and you name things. I remember the birth of GPS. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, the Defense Department, the Air Force opposed it. Oh, really? (laughs) No, we didn't want to do it. It had to be overturned by the civilian leadership. Oh, no kidding. And then it was President Reagan who all by himself decided that everybody should be able to use uh, Uh uh, GPS. But still it wasn't as granular and, and detailed as the military-grade GPS, at least in the yes, beginning. Yes, that's true. That's true. But but the general point is that everything that mattered and that happened of consequence came out of government, mm-hmm. came out of the United States, and mostly came out of the military within the United States. Mm-hmm. That was then. Now, it's a much bigger mix. A lot of the technology of consequence to the future comes out of the commercial world, and the commercial world is inherently global. What does that mean for us as the Defense Department? Managerially, it's a very different thing. You have to do not only the management within your own house if you're an R&D, but I had to build, I called them bridges, mm-hmm. to the tech world so that we could stay connected with them and draw the best of what they were doing into us rather than having the flow only be the other direction. And now how do you do that when you have Edward Snowden? Right. And you have a generation of technologists that is kind of suspicious of government or thinks government is inferior and they're sort of, uh, uh, or abuse. I had to try to restore that relationship of trust which was the one that launched my career that went back to the Manhattan Project but all that would all that had been gone mm-hmm. and and Jim Comey who was my colleague in the FBI was picking fights with 
Tim Cook, who was the CEO of Apple, and I'm in the middle of all of this. And I tried, and I think I had some success in drawing the tech community in, but you had to kind of meet them 50-50. So, for right. example, I'd try to get people to come in and serve in what I called the Defense Digital Service, mm-hmm. which is it was a, a way that I, you could a tech person could come in and just work for one year or on one project and they didn't have to join the military. They didn't have to join the civil service. They right. could just they could come in. And I'd go and I'd try to recruit them. And they'd have orange hair and rings <laughs> in their noses. And I'd say, I'm not going to ask you to do anything different. You can wear your hoodie. You, you come to the Pentagon. And I promise you, when you do that, first of all, your respect for the Pentagon will be very strong. Mm-hmm. And s- second, w- this will be what you'll tell your children about. You'll be proudest of this, prouder of this than working somewhere where you're selling advertising or whatever, as interesting as that may may be. And they would come, and I wouldn't make them change clothes, and they'd be walking around the halls along with all of our people who are buttoned down and are wearing right. a suit like me or wearing a uniform. Um, and, they, and it was true. By the time they left, they'd tell me this is the most meaningful thing. I've ever done, and I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of the people that I was with and could be part of. Could be part of. But if you didn't build that bridge at the beginning, and you didn't say, "Look, we're going to have to agree to disagree about Edward Snowden," you may think he's a hero. I think he's a traitor. Mm-hmm. But let's agree to disagree about that. But I want you to come in and give us a try. And then they would come in, they'd give it a try, it would be successful, and they'd go back out to Silicon Valley or out to Boston or down to Austin, back to the tech hubs. Mm-hmm. And they'd take the word that the, the government ain't so bad after, <laughs> after all. And it does need our help, and it deserves our help. So that's interesting. You, you mentioned earlier um, Iran and North Korea. Let's talk about two other countries you mentioned in the book, uh, Inside the Five-Sided Box. Let's talk about China and Russia. China seems to be very good at hacking corporate computer systems and taking pretty much what they want, including military uh, manufacturers and capturing plans for jets and drones and everything else. How dangerous a adversary is China? Well, they're, I, I think they're quite dangerous and I have thought that for quite some time I came earlier than most people to the view even even though I worked with the Chinese quite closely in the 90s and after 2000 knew everybody in the PLA had good relations with with them it was clear to me that China wasn't going to turn out the way everybody'd hoped in the 1990s they meaning hoped, a, a friend like us yes right. yes I hate that they'd word they'd be different but... they'd be Chinese but they wouldn't challenge the world order they wouldn't become an economic competitor. I mean, they wouldn't become a military competitor and they would be an, become an eco, economic power, kind of one like us, a free trade type economic, right. uh, and be like Canada and Mexico and Europe and that kind of thing. Well, Wishful it thinking? Out, it, it was. It, it, well, in the 1990s, you may have still held on to that hope. I thought by 2000, when my conversations, as I watched Zhang Zemin become Hu Jintao, become Xi Jinping, and I've known all three of them, it became clearer and clearer that they were going down a a path quite deliberately of statism Mm -hmm. rather than 
free trade and capitalism, repression rather than an open society, and um, one that was going to use every advantage a dictatorship could have to advantage themselves, including the one you started with, which is using their spy agencies to steal information. The Chinese had copied us for a long time, or we used to be flattered by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then at a certain point, they get good enough at copying you that it stops being flattering and becomes threatening to you. Right. And we, we passed that point quite some time ago. So let me ask a question here. I still look at China as more of an economic threat than a, mm-hmm. and, and more of a potential military threat. At what point does that balance shift? At what point do they become a legitimate military threat with aims of global domination versus letting their economy, which is quite an industrial engine, drive the development of the country? Well, I think they're convinced and determined to be militarily superior, but that's not going to happen for a long time. Mm-hmm. We have comprehensive military power that it's going to be take a long time for the Chinese to overcome. Think about this. We spend a lot more every year than they do, mm-hmm. for starters. Multiples, Secondly, right? yes. Secondly, we have been doing that for decades, which means we have this accumulated capital stock that is much larger than theirs. Third, we have an experienced military. Our people have basically been at war for the last 15 years. Our officer corps is extremely proficient. Mm -hmm. And last, we have all the friends and allies, and they have none, basically. Well, they've been buying friends with that Belt and Road approach. You know, I'm not, I think the Belt and Road, like them overtaking us militarily is uh, exaggerated also. It's what really? Belt, yeah, Belt and Road. Remember, this is the country that builds cities with no people in them. Right. And so they're perfectly capable of having initiatives with nothing going on underneath. What they did with Belt and Road was gather together a lot of stuff they were doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Most of the countries that they they Belt and Road with. South America. Yeah. Well, go to Africa and mm-hmm. ask how the, which, where the Chinese came first. And the Chinese have worn out there. It takes about three years, and they wear out their welcome. Oh, really? Yes, because that's when people realize that it's all about China. And they're not grants. They're loans. They're loans on predatory terms. Oh, really? And the Chinese bring in all their own workers and then start taking your precious metals out of your country. They bring in their own work, and that's the Belt and Road. So it sours on people real mm-hmm. fast because it's so exploitative. You know, and that's where China and we, I think, really differ in fundamentally. And that is this. If our, at our best, and usually, and certainly our institutions go back to the Enlightenment, and it was about the rights of man and the dignity of man, today we'd say people, um, for China, it's all about being Chinese. So our ideology, yes, we're American and we stick up for Americans. Maybe we're narrow-minded sometime. But at the heart, our political values are universal. At their heart, Chinese political values are about being China. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon, that dawns on everybody around them. Remember also that China's only half of Asia. That's right. So I want to have a China policy, but I always tell people we don't have a China policy. We have an Asia policy. And I want to win the other half. I want to trade with it. I want it to be friendly with me. I want it to work with me militarily. And that is both a good in itself and a hedge against China 
So we we can't lose those. We really had to keep keep our focus. And the Secretary of Defense, I spent a lot of time meeting with my uh, counterparts from Vietnam, from Laos, from Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, as well as the traditional friends like Japan and Korea and Australia and so forth, to make sure that we had friends there and that the Chinese saw that we had friends. So let's talk about one other country in Asia, which is Russia, (laughs) not economically the powerhouse that China is, but they seem to be very good at sowing dissent and sowing disinformation. Their brand of um, warfare or pre-warfare is kind of unique. Their involvement in various, uh, when you're an open society, you have to acknowledge that they're going to attempt to disrupt our elections and everything else. How does the former Secretary of Defense look at the former Soviet Union that's now Russia? Well, when your trend lines are all down like Russia's (laughs) rather than up like China's, you only have one tool, and that is to be a spoiler. Uh Uh-huh. And the Russians have perfected being a spoiler. For sure. So they have NATO, which has unity, and so they try to to sow discord. They have the United States, which is doing fine and powerful and won the Cold War, and they resent. And so their way of trying to get back at us is to try to sow discord within the United States. That's all they have. And when uh, dealing with... Putin over the years. By the way, I first met Vladimir Putin in 1993. He was a note taker in mm-hmm. meetings between Clinton and Yeltsin. He sat in the back, this guy, and we knew who he was. CIA knew who he was. Right. He's back there taking notes. His and my view of him has been if it were only that we disagreed about Syria and right. Iran and NATO expansion and so forth. Those are normal geopolitical issues. And there with a foreign leader, you go in and you agree where you can, and you agree to disagree where you can't, and you go on. The problem with him is as you work down the list, you find he has an item on his list that you can't build a bridge to, and that's screwing us. Right. <laughs> and that's on his to-do list. I, and I it's suspect, very hard to negotiate uh-huh. on uh, and say, well, let's talk about screwing us, and maybe we can meet halfway. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I expect we're going to find out that Russia was much more involved in Brexit than anybody previously imagined. Yeah, that's actually a new documentary out called The Great Hack, a Netflix documentary which describes uh, exactly that, uh, very deeply involved in trying to sow that. Now, of course, for them, it was their their, uh, uh, throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stick. They're... They're fomenting all kinds of discord. And every once in a while, one of these goes, one of these long shots goes the distance and doesn't just stir up a cloud of dust, but there's a cowboy at the end of it. And in the case of Brexit, they scored. Um, But I don't think going into it, they they knew they were going to win that one. They were. Huh. That's amazing. That's what weak countries do. And and Russia basically has nuclear weapons and being a spoiler. And that's all it's got. I have a million questions for you, but I know I only have you for a short period of time. Let me ask you some of my favorite questions. I ask all my guests sort of our speed round, and then we'll uh, get you over to television and and have you continue the conversation. What was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model? (laughs) It was a 1968 Impala. Uh And 
the reason I know intimately about that car was I worked for five years at a gas station on North Broad Street in Philadelphia. That was my second job. The first job was at a car wash, and I got fired from it. Okay. Uh, and then I walked up the street and got a job at a golf station there. And, and, and therefore, I could take that car apart and put it back together again, something I could never do with a car today. Uh-huh. Well, it's all chips and computers. It's yeah, uh... You have to replace – you just replace – uh, chunks of it, you know, there are no turning or wrenches and stuff. Tell us about your early mentors who influenced your career, whether it was academically at MIT and Harvard or um, professionally uh, in the Pentagon. Well, two eras. The, the the people who got me from being a physicist to being a public servant were those guys from the um, generation of the Manhattan Project that I referred to earlier who believed that they had um, done something of consequence, namely the nuclear weapon, but that with knowledge came responsibility. Mm-hmm. Then later in my in the time where I slowly kind of worked my way up from junior ranks in the defense establishment to becoming the Secretary of Defense, um, there were people... Uh, like Jim Schlesinger, who sure. was Richard Nixon, James Schlesinger, yeah, absolutely, great, great guy. Brent Scowcroft, National Security Advisor, and and uh, four star general previous. To yes, that? Uh, three star general actually. Brent, I gave him a promotion, uh, but okay, he deserved one. <laughs> um, Bill Perry, who was uh, Secretary of Defense, to, Admiral in the Navy. To, uh, am I remembering uh, the right Perry? No, this is a guy who there was a Perry long ago who right, was a different admiral. Perry. No, this was a guy who was a scientist like okay. me, as it turns out. But uh, not all three of those were. Um, Bob Gates. These were people who were uh, uh, capable, and they always stuck up. Stuck up for a junior person. And I got myself into a few tight jams where I thought I was doing the right thing. One of them was with respect to President Reagan's Star Wars, uh-huh. which I, I said wasn't going to work, was my <laughs> technical judgment. Well, that flew in the face of a president's desire. <laughs> right. And I, I, I learned what it was like to tell the truth in the real world. Wait, but, presidents don't like when you crap all over <laughs> no, their no. biggest but, strategic but initiative? The, but those people that I just named stuck up for me at that time uh-huh. and therefore stuck up for the truth. And that made me feel that there was dignity and honor as well as purpose in public life. And I tried to carry that forward with me. And I don't think I would have stuck with it if I hadn't been able to look up at my at people who, it turns out, became my predecessors as Secretary of Defense and say that is not only a capable and patriotic person, but an admirable and honorable person. Quite, quite interesting. Let, let's talk about some of your favorite books. What do you enjoy reading? You're a bit of a historian. You know, it's funny, Barry. I am. Uh, and I'm all nonfiction mm-hmm. uh, because I love to learn about something I've never seen, never done, never will do. Uh, that's why I wrote the book I did about the Pentagon, mm-hmm. because if you've never been in the Pentagon and you want to know how all the parts work. It paints quite a vivid picture. It's an executive guide or a citizen's guide to the Pentagon. It's not about me. It's about the, the Pentagon. I like reading books like that. That's why I wrote a book like that. I read, and this may surprise you, textbooks. Okay. And it may sound boring, but here's why. A text. If you want to learn something, a textbook is about is designed. It's written to teach you. Sure. So, a, from a good textbook, you can learn a lot about a subject you don't know. And 
Um, second, if you don't like, if, if something doesn't come through to you in the first textbook, get another textbook. I always get three or four on the same really? subject. I like mathematics. I like physics, but I, I like history and language and so forth too, because then you can say, well, I'm going to, this, I didn't get this guy's explanation of a certain subject. So I'll go to the corresponding chapter in the other one and read that. And they've got a better explanation and you go back and forth. I like doing that, and I may sound like an odd recommendation to people, but if you like to learn, uh, try textbooks. Okay. There's there's two books I have to ask you about on the off chance you might have read them based on our previous discussion. One is a book on the history of the medieval era with the title A World Lit Only by Fire. I had I had not read it, but I've I've read. I guess it, I have it, it's of kind it. of fascinating because that thousand year period is shocking for the lack of technological advancement. Yes, before it, and after tons. It, it but was that, it was dark and every wasn't culturally dark, but it, if you look at human material progress, not a lot for the wet for Western culture. There was a thousand years when, say, Islam was going great right. guns and China at that as time. well. And right. yes, and they were doing mathematics and they were doing all sorts of things with trade and pottery and glass and so forth. We were doing nothing over right. the Western world. The the other book that you immediately made me think of when you were describing how people often don't appreciate and and understand what the government is doing is the most recent Michael Lewis book called The Fifth Risk, yeah. which is about all these scientists and all these managers that are doing the government's work that is effectively essential, and most of us are oblivious to it. Well, that's, in a sense, the theme of that book is the theme of my mm -hmm. life of getting into na national defense as a technologist. And there are lots of other skills as well. I'm a strong believer that um, uh, the best government is one that people come into and go out of. Now, we're criticized for that. For the and revolving door. For the revol yeah, and every administration, things change. And here's how it looks to me about political appointees and government. Uh, about half of them are really good. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a quarter of them have no idea what they're doing at first, but they learn fast and they're patriotic and they do well. And a quarter of them are hopeless and never get any better. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much the way it is. But they bring in a freshness mm -hmm. every time they come that I think is healthy for our government. And so compared to the British who are horrified, for example, to see all their counterparts chart change every time a presidential administration changes, right. it's pretty helpful. But in a time, particularly in the military, where we're, Barry, we're never going to return to the draft. We will continue to get people to register for the draft because it's a little reminder that they owe something to their country. Mm -hmm. But I don't want – there are 4 million kids who turn 18 every year. I don't need 4 million. I need a quarter of a million. And moreover, many of them are not physically or mentally fit to be in our military mm -hmm. today. So there will never be a citizen army. So there needs to be some way of linking the people and government. And one way is for those who have something to contribute to to, to um, find some way of being supportive. Uh, and there are lots of ways of, of doing that. So I, I think that's important for citizens to don't, don't believe you're self-made. Even if you're a successful person, none of us is self-made. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. 
Um, I uh, early early on in my uh, time in, so to speak, the big leagues, the number three, number two, number one, uh, I had to work very hard at dealing with the press and the Congress and just getting good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and first of all, you have to start from the right place, and I did, which is you can't start from a position of disdain. Uh, in Congress, for example, you know, most of these guys are working so hard. They're so big. They are, they are trying to understand a much wider range of issues than even the Secretary of Defense. They have to vote on all these other issues. And so you have to start with a, a attitude that they're very, they're, that they're very stretched and they're, they're trying. Um, but what I had to do, Barry, and I described this in the book, is practice. I would sit down before a hearing or before I went out and made an announcement or did a press conference, I would go out and practice and I'd get my staff and I'd get Joe Dunford who was a chairman with me so he could learn too mm-hmm. from the same room. And I'd say, ask me all the hard questions, ask me the things that I might not have thought of. Um, because when you're, when you're going real fast and I was going real fast cause there was a lot I wanted to do. And I had two years as the top guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had had all those years to think about what I, would like to see see done. I was going fast, um, and I wanted them to catch the soft spots in my arguments and the places where I was skipping over over things. So I wasn't too proud to practice. But Chuck Hagel, who came before me, who was a very very great guy, he didn't practice for his confirmation hearing. And that was a rough confirmation. And it was hearing. a very rough confirmation. And I asked him to practice. I said I wasn't too proud to practice. And he said, I've been a member of the Senate for a long time. I know how to handle it. I think in retrospect, he would have done well, done a little bit better if he had, he had practiced. Um, uh, but that was something I wasn't good at. And mm-hmm. I describe in the book how if you're that kind of person or you think you might be, don't be too proud. Um, what are you most optimistic about the Pentagon and the military a procurement process going forward, and what are you most pessimistic about? About its procurement mm-hmm. process, I I think that if the it continues to kind have good management at the top, and I can't speak for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I tried to set that example, but I I don't know. Um, uh, I think we can continue to be the finest fighting force the world has ever known technologically mm-hmm. as well as in the kind of people we attract. And generally speaking, I'm optimistic about that for our military overall. It's a learning organization. It's a very constructive organization. It's been at the top technologically in terms of human talent. And if it continues to draw from the civilian world the very best tradecraft from them about how to be good and how to compete and how to be the best, I think I'm I'm, I'm – confident we can be, uh, be the best. I also think that it's a great molder of, of citizens. Our veterans are wonderful people. They're, they're morally correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know how to behave themselves and conduct themselves. Uh, uh, they're disciplined and determined, and, and they understand that uh, we all live here and uh, that the government is one of the ways, but not the only way, that we keep uh, our society and civilization going. They have that imbued in them. They know that they're not self-made, that mm-hmm. they're part of a wider society. All those good values. Uh, so I'm pretty optimistic. 
And our final question, what do you know about the world of politics and diplomacy and the Pentagon today that you wish you knew when you were getting started? I didn't always re- – I think I took a lot for granted in the course of my life. When I talk about the Jim Schlesingers and the Prince mm-hmm. Crowcross and the Bill Perrys and the Bob Gates and Bean, I, I could always look northward right up to the president and there was – uh, a good order and discipline for the most part in the government. These were admirable people. They made mistakes there uh, for sure. sure. And I didn't agree with everything they, they did, but starting with president Reagan and the first president under, I worked under, I could look up and I say the president of the United States is, is uh, someone whom I can work for and, and kind of emulate what he stands for. There's a part of our country and it's not just the president, but it's uh, th- that, um, uh, I, I, I now understand how lucky I was to have those people mm-hmm. ab- above me. And maybe I took that for granted. I mean, I'm a believer in what we've been doing in the world, uh, all these decades. I now realize that you, you really have to keep proving that to the public and make them understand that this is a necessity and that you can't take anything for granted. So I, I would take a lot less for granted now than I thought I could when I started my career. But I had around me uh, people like those, um, and you tend to do that. Quite quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Ash Carter, former Secretary of Defense and author of a new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon, If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the previous 300 or so such conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Please give us a review on Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Carolyn O'Brien is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is my project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.